The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. of the Keep or Cut podcast. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. Very excited to be here with you. Week and a half now into the season, and we wanted to start to get some questions from our listeners, see what you guys want us to talk about. Yeah, uh, and we got some awesome questions. It wasn't super like player-specific questions, which is good because, I mean, based on a week sample size, we don't really want to judge too much based on what we've seen. But more like, you know, obviously keeper related questions, some good new questions. So I'm excited to dive in, Chad. We got some good stuff. Let's just jump right in then. Our first question comes from at Fletch Topper on Twitter. Tells us, I am terrible at taking over teams in need of a rebuild. Currently in the middle of one and it feels like I'll never get out. What are the first couple of things you look to do to try and fast track improvement? So for me, I mean, Chad, you know that my first Ot new team ever, I was taking over from the boss man, Nick Pollock. Are you saying Nick's team was in need of a rebuild? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, it was a little bit like stars and scrubs, I guess, with some interesting. I mean, you know how Nick is, right? He punted pitching, basically. Yeah, it's not your style. Not your style at all. No, not at all. Not at all. I think what I like doing with any rebuild, and this wasn't specific to this Ot new team, and I didn't do it with this Ot new team last year, and I wish I did, was like, just make it your own. You know, if there's a borderline player that you don't think you like, you know, you're sitting there you're like, oh man, like I, this is a pretty good price for this player. Well, ask yourself, would you have paid that? Because if not, just cut him. I wish I did that more with the Ot new team that I took over. I just like, I wish I ruthlessly cut because that's what I ended up doing this year. But last year's auction, I did not. I also made a terrible trade. So like that, that usually doesn't help. That would be my advice is, you know, don't trade a very affordable Julio Urias for Jesus Lazardo, which now in retrospect actually looks pretty good because I got Lazardo back in the auction for just $4 and he looks awesome. But at the time that was a terrible trade, but, but ruthlessly cut, make it your own. I, there's no, it's almost like a free pass, right? Like this isn't your fault. You've taken over a team, so just start it from scratch. Let's go. Yeah, I think the, the first note I had also was make it mine. If you're taking over this time of year or any time midseason, really, rather than ruthlessly cut, which you should do at the cut deadline, like for sure in the offseason. Yes. But at this point, what I'm doing is taking anyone who's a quote-unquote good player that I don't like and trading them. They go on the trade block immediately. And so just as an example of that, Javier Baez is always more popular with the population at large than he is with me. 
And if I took over a team and Javier Baez was on there, the very first thing I would do is put him on the block and see if I could trade him for someone I want to keep long-term who I, who I think is a better or more interesting player. So I'm going to go through the roster and find those guys and move on. I think where you do have to be ruthless about making cuts in a rebuild is don't get, don't get precious about the idea that I have to trade this guy. I have to get value for this guy. Sometimes cutting a guy to pick up a free agent is the right trade. And so don't hesitate to say like, oh man, it sucks to just lose this guy for nothing. If you're about to win an auction, you know, not a new league, you're about to win an auction for a guy you're really excited about. And you're worried about making the cut because you don't want to cut a guy who might have trade value. Sometimes the cut is the right move. And and so don't hesitate to make those moves and, and get rid of players you're not interested in, you don't want. I think one of the mistakes I tend to make is believing that a guy has trade value, even though I think I might have to cut him. Like if I think I might have to cut him, I should be assuming that everybody else in the league might have to cut him too, right? He's a, he's a borderline player. So make those cuts and, and go get players you're excited about. The other thing I would say is the question here was, how do you fast track improvement? At some level, I don't think you can. Like you can't just go out and try to be like, oh, I took over this team in April. It's not good. How can I be good by the second half of this year? Like you can't. Well, maybe you can't, but you probably can't. And that shouldn't be your goal. What you should do though is focus on players who are going to help you next year. Like, don't go out and trade for a bunch of like, you know, random, not even random. Don't go out and trade for a bunch of top prospects who are in low A and just making their debut and might eventually get to majors in 2024 or something like that. That isn't what you should be looking at. Like, look at players in trades, in free agent acquisitions, who based on their price and their timeline are either already in the majors and are going to be cheap enough to help you next year or are going to be in the majors early enough to actually impact your team next year. Anything further away than that is just not a big focus for me. If somebody wants to throw in a like, like a guy like Yuri Perez, who I think is a really interesting pitching prospect for the Marlins, but I don't think is going to be up anytime soon. I'm probably not like primarily targeting him in trades. If someone wants to add him to a trade. I think he could help at some point next year. And so, yeah, I'll take him. I'm not going to say no, but he's not my primary focus. My primary focus is someone who I think might be up late this year or by at the latest early next year. And I think that's that's consistent outside of Otnew as well, right? I know this wasn't an Otnew specific question, but it's the same thing. If I took over a dynasty team, if I took over a keeper league, it's like, yeah, it's cool to have the guy in low A who, I don't know, who's a good example of that right now? I guess like Nick York, right? Nick York is is flying up draft boards. He's off to a rocket start this year. But like, are we even going to see him next year? I don't know. So like, would I want him on my roster? Sort of your approach with Yuri Perez. Like, sure, I'm not going to turn away the talent, but I want to turn this team around as quickly as possible. So if I have trade assets that are of value to other managers that I don't want, I want to turn those around for pieces that can get me in contention sooner. Life is short, man. Try to contend. Yeah. And one other thing I think is very important is know your league and know your rules. Uh, I, we had a, a manager in, in a league that I play in, a non-outer new league that I play in, take over a team this offseason. And it's a league where the offseason is like nothing happens from the end of the season until like March 1st. And then we rush through like three weeks of an offseason. And so he really had no introduction to league until then. I sent him a trade offer during our like week of trade window. 
And his response, like, I thought it was a fair trade offer. I thought I was, I was helping him. I actually sort of thought like, okay, I'm going to, I've got more keepers than I need. This new guy's taking over a terrible team. We can probably find a win-win where he adds two or three more keepers than he has. And I get a better player out of it. And his response, which I thought was probably the right response, even though it wasn't what I wanted was, I'm just not going to make a trade like this right now. I don't know enough about the league. I'm still learning the rules. I'm still learning how things work. I'm going to be more conservative, at least for the moment. Like I tend not to do that. Like I like to be aggressive, but I'm only aggressive after I spend time really getting to know the rules. There is a big difference between a keeper league where you have three keepers at no cost and a keeper league where you have 10 keepers at a cost of three rounds above what they were last year. Right. And so make sure you know what you're doing, who you might be able to keep. I, I One of the things I do when I take over an auto new team is I immediately put together a spreadsheet that looks at what players are going to cost next year and whether or not I think I would keep them and start to piece together like, oh, wow, I've got a lot. Like, If you have a league with eight keeper spots and you already have seven guys you think are keepers, you need to keep that in mind in every trade you make that you don't pick up four new keepers and realize you can't keep them all anyways. So I hope that helped. That is That's how... how that's at least how I think about taking over a rebuild. Let's jump on to our next question. This is from at Kevin Steffes, S-T-E-F-F-E-S on Twitter. He just wants to know if there's any expected call-ups we should be looking at soon. This is an interesting one because neither you nor I are sort of prospect guys by trade. We're not news guys. So this is a little bit of speculation, but is there anyone that you're looking at that you're thinking like, okay, I bet this guy is going to help me now. Yeah, so the one that sticks out is Nolan Gorman, and and it, it, the Cardinals don't seem like they really need him right now, but he's he's going to at some point force their hand. So he thirty four at bats so far at Memphis, and he's already got five home runs. He has struck out fourteen times, but he's still batting three fifty three. The OPS is up at just about twelve hundred. Now, obviously, sample size, right? But he's going to force their hand at some point. Another name I, I'd keep an eye on, Chad is Ryan Fitzgerald within the Red Sox system. He had a monster spring. I can't remember how many homers he hit in the spring. He's 27 years old, so this isn't like a wait-and-see situation. And already this minor league season, he is up to four homers, nine RBI, and he's hitting 400. So if the Red Sox, you know, Christian Arroyo is no stranger to an an injury list visit, they might have a need in the lineup, or he could, sort of like how I feel about Gorman, just kind of force their hand. He's not as exciting as Gorman, and he's certainly not as exciting as like a Grayson Rodriguez or somebody who, you know, they may, our listeners are maybe expecting to hear. But could he, you know, come up and provide some immediate pop just because he's he's riding a hot bat? He could. So if if I could get one of those guys for you know a dollar in a not new league or something like that, you're not going to get Gorman for that. They might be worth the stash, but no pitchers really stick out because it's still too early to decide where where a need is. I would have said Mackenzie Gore, but obviously he's now up. So Fitzgerald and Gorman would be my uh, my picks. Yeah, a, a couple other names just to toss in there. Jemai Jones with Baltimore. He was sort of more of a top prospect in the past with the Angels, but he is tearing up AAA right now. He has a 191 WRC+. Plus. I, I don't know that Baltimore has any reason not to bring him up. So I, I suspect that if he keeps hitting like that, he'll get a shot. Isaac Paredes, who came to Tampa in the Austin Meadows trade with Detroit, he's put up good numbers sort of everywhere he's gone. He's gotten some shots in the majors and hasn't really been able to stick yet. But he is also, you know, only 40 plate appearances. But he also has, a, I think, almost 200 
213 WRC plus. So both of those guys are guys who I think are just, they're just sort of destroying the baseball right now. You know, and I feel like we, what we haven't really done here is mention other than Gorman, we haven't really mentioned top prospects. We haven't mentioned Tristan Cassis. We haven't mentioned O'Neill Cruz. You mentioned that you're not ready to talk about Grayson Rodriguez. I think we're in sort of a weird spot where it looks like the new rules in the CBA with the like anyone who is high in the rookie of the year voting, you might get a full year of service time, even if you don't call them up right away. Plus, if you have a guy up on opening day, you have a chance to win a bonus draft pick. We saw a bunch of guys, Torkelson and Rodriguez and others who started the year, Bobby Witt, on major league rosters. And I, I sort of wonder if the guys who are held back, the teams aren't meaningfully holding them back, right? They, they don't they don't want them to win the Rookie of the Year award, for one thing. They also could now wait out like a Super 2 timeline in more like June. Uh, and so I, I just wonder if you're going to see, like we used to see a bunch of late April, early May call-ups from the, from the service time manipulation. And I just wonder if we're going to see fewer of those because more of those guys are either going to be held down longer for further service time manipulation or we're already called up because teams are trying to be more aggressive. It's an interesting theory. I mean, I, I guess butts and seats comes into play too. Like you look at a team like Arizona because you got me thinking about Alec Thomas and you're bringing up those names that broke camp with their teams because he was certainly in that mix as well. Arizona is sitting there with a 64 team WRC plus. By the way, first on that that list, the Cleveland Guardians. So yeah, so that? that's but, right. <laughs> but like at some point, I mean, I, you got to put butts in seats. You got to do something for your team. And if Alec Thomas is making a case to be called up, I guess I would put him on my list. And that comes back to who you brought up, O'Neill Cruz as well. So, I mean, the Pirates are known for making disastrous, terrible decisions. I guess my money would be on Thomas to get up there first out there in Arizona. But those are two names, I guess I would add to my my Gorman and Fitzgerald list of potential candidates. But your theory about them not wanting to win rookie of the year, and now they're in this like weird limbo state where if it didn't happen up front, then it's not going to happen. That could certainly certainly come into play. Yeah, I mean, it is a worst case scenario for a team like Pittsburgh to call up Cruz now, have him win rookie of the year, and then the month that they didn't have him up, I guess only a couple of weeks at this point, the couple of weeks they didn't have him up, they now lose that. That's service time that is gone that they don't right. get back. So sort of weird. I mentioned him sort of in passing, but Tristan Cassis in 10 games, 45 plate appearances at AAA, oh, 257 man. average, 400 on base, 543 slugging, three home runs. He's got a 400 Woba. He's got 10 runs and nine RBIs in 10 games. Right. So that's like 160 run, 150 RBI pace. Uh, I'm guessing he right. won't keep that up, but it's happening right now. Meanwhile, Bobby Dahlbeck, who is who's very good in the second half last year, is not exactly setting the world on fire, to say the least, <laughs> in in Boston. When does Cassis supplant him? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think honestly it, it it's probably gonna have to take an injury. Look at the underlying metrics with Dahlbeck. Like he's been bad, but he hasn't been as bad as maybe the stats show. And I think his second half last year does give him a little bit of runway here in the early going. I mean, he still has an average exit velocity of 93.2 so far this season. His expected batting average is 257. So hard hit percentage, 58.8. I think he's going to get a lot more runway before they decide to make a change there. At the same time, keep in mind that in the playoffs, he barely played. 
it was like, yeah, great. You had that great second half. Thanks a lot, Bobby. Now ride the bench. That's that's kind of how it felt. So I don't I don't think there's a whole lot of belief there. If Cassis does force their hand, you know, that certainly could happen. But it just feels like they're going to they're going to wait and see and see exactly what they have in Bobby Dahlback, because if they can get anything out of him, he all of a sudden becomes a pretty interesting trade candidate. I don't think like, yes, J.D. Martinez is leaving at the end of the year, most likely. I don't think their answer at DH is going to be Bobby Dahlbeck or or Cassis. I think they're they're going to keep one of them and put them at first base, and that could make Dahlbeck an interesting, expendable piece to maybe bring in some some help for the major league team later on in the year. So they need to they need to see something from him before they abandon ship. So d- digging into Dahlbeck a bit, I mean, last year the second half he didn't play quite full time. He played in. Let's take a look at this. I had this just a minute ago, and now I lost it. It was like 58 games and 100 and some odd plate appearances. 58 games, 195 plate appearances. So not quite a full-time role in the second half last year. He did improve his walk rate. His walk rate was up to 8.2% and his strikeout rate, which was down to 31.3%, but it still was at 31.3%, which is still very high. His BAPIP went up, but it wasn't a disaster at 323 the big change for him was he went from a 16.9% home run per fly ball rate to 27.8% in the second half. That is, and that was based, it looks to me like on a change in his pull rate. He was pulling the ball 33.8% of the time in the first half, 46.5% in the second half. Dahlbeck basically, like in the first half, he basically tried to go to all fields. He was at like 33% pull, 39% up the middle, 27% opposite. Second half, he started pulling the ball almost half the time, and his results got much, much better. I I think he needs to keep doing that. Looking at him in the early going this year, that strikeout rate is still up over 30%. It's at 31%. He's got a walk rate back down to 6.9%, which is sort of a reversion to where he was before. And his home run per fly ball rate is only 11.1%. And he's pulling the ball 35% of the time back below where he was in the first half last year, around where he was in the first half last year. I I think... You know, it's funny. I saw someone recently talk about like, oh, it's really nice. Dahlbeck's trying to like go up the middle, go the other way. And like, that's where he's going to find his power. No, Bobby Dahlbeck needs to stop doing that. Turn on the ball and smash it. And if he turns, if he does that, he might be able to get back to what he was. If not, then I think he's going to get supplanted by Cassis pretty soon. But it, it'll be interesting to see where, where that plays out. I think you're right, though. Dahlbeck's got a lot more runway before they need to force their hand. It's really like right now, the idea that Dahlbeck could get replaced is less about Dahlbeck and more about Cassis. But I don't think either of those is going to make a change just yet. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I think, it, look, they want to contend. They've spent a lot of money. And this is kind of, this is probably the only year with all three of Devers, Bogarts, and Trevor Story. So if they feel like Dahlbeck's holding them back and Cassis could help them win now, they will make the change. It would just be nice to see something out of Dahlbeck to make him a little expendable. Yeah, totally makes sense. Let's jump to our next question. This one comes from at Worldwide Teb, T-E-B-B. Says, what do you think about Alex Kirilov now in Keeper Leagues? What does his latest, does his latest injury make the risk more than the reward? Or is he still worth holding on to? So first, just to catch everyone up, who, if anyone doesn't know about the, the news with him, it's not necessarily a new injury, which is almost worse. Actually, I think is worse. He's having mm-hmm. continuing pain in the wrist that he had surgically repaired last year. That 
I mean, that's that's concerning, right? Like this was supposed to be fixed and behind him. And one of the things, you know, you and I were both very high on Kirilov this offseason. And one of the things that we talked about was like, he's had this wrist thing. It's behind him now. He's ready to go. May have been premature. Yeah, this is a really hard question to answer because we don't know what's going on inside of that wrist. I mean, it's been described as puzzling and you hope it's just like, maybe it's just a, gotta be a post, you know, cleanup surgery where, you know, just gotta go. I'm not going to speak in very medical terms here, but you know, like, okay, maybe the cartilage or whatever just needs to be cleaned up a little bit in the wrist, but it's, there are certain things you just don't want to hear. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 We're just going to go in there. Just clean Post surgery cleanup of the cartilage. I think that's, that's the technical yeah, yeah. term there, <laughs> <laughs> but w- whatever it might be, you hope it's some, a, a small procedural surgery, like a bone chip or something like that. And I, I, I don't know anything about it. So it's, it's such a hard question to answer, but what I can say is if I roster him in fantasy leagues, first of all, I'm not selling him now because you're not going to get absolutely anything. You're, you're in a position now where you just got to sit and wait it out. And you hope the news is like, oh, he's actually fine. He's going to miss, you know, two weeks and then he's going to be back. And then when he comes back, if he hits a home run in that first game, then maybe you can sell him. I wouldn't try to sell him right now. It's just there are certain parts of the body you don't want to hear hitters get injured. It's the hand. It's the wrist. It's the shoulder. And it's definitely the oblique. And this is one of those categories that I just I don't want to hear. So having already had a season shut down because of it and now it's come up again so soon, it sucks. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to trade him for, you know, Bryson Stott? Like, you're not going to get anything for him. I don't know. I think if I could get Bryson Stott, I might be kind of interested <laughs> right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess I that's where we're will. at. Yeah. I think, so, I mean, the, the thing long term, the positive, right? I hate to say positive with an injury, but yes, it was only 18 plate appearances. Kirloff was striking out 38.9% of the time, right? In the, he had 18 plate appearances and seven strikeouts he didn't walk once he wasn't hitting for any power he wasn't hitting for any anything he was he had an 059 average on base and slugging like he was doing nothing so i wasn't worried about that because it was only 18 plate appearances however there is a small part of me that thinks like okay at least there's an explanation like we don't have an explanation for the wrist but the wrist is the explanation for the poor performance and so i can sort of brush that aside and and focus on his health and still believe that he has the talent that I believe he is in redraft. I'd probably be fine dropping him in a keeper league. This is again, where your rules really matter. If it's like a keep three, I don't care about his long-term value that much because he's probably not going to be one of my three keepers sort of regardless of what happens. If it's a keep 12, then I want to be able to stash him. If you have IL spots, throw him in an IL spot until you really, really need one. You know, that does happen. I mean, I, I am in a league right now that I have three IL spots and I've got Tyler Glass now, who I chose to stash, Lance Lynn and Blake Snell. If I also had Kirilov, I'd either have to, you know, I, I don't know what I would do. I, I might just wait and see if Snell's back soon and hopefully I can just then stash Kirilov at that time. But it does get more challenging. My big question, my, my situation where I'm in trouble with Alex Kirilov is I have him in the league that you and I are both in, the Fangraph Staff League. And that is the team that Niv Shah and I entered into OPL together. And in OPL, a guy who's injured is just a wasted roster spot. And so, like, I hate to cut him, and I don't want to trade him right now. So, But I think we're going to have to shop him and, and sort of see what we can get. But I'm not going to do it yet. I'm going to give it at least another week or so. The next deadline for OPL is coming up at the beginning of May. I want to know in the next week or so, like, 
like I said, do, do they do we at least get an answer? Because even if the answer is like, okay, we know exactly what it is. He needs surgery. He's going to miss six weeks. His trade value will go up with that news. Because right now, all we know is he has a wrist issue that hasn't gone away in like almost a year. And that's after, and, and now he's had surgery and it hasn't helped. And so like that right now, it feels very scary. I, I'm certainly waiting at least a week or so. Look, maybe we find out in the next couple of weeks that it actually is terrible and he'll be a cut, but I don't think that's what we're going to find out. I think we're going to at least get a timeline and that'll increase his trade value. And so if that timeline doesn't work for you, if you need someone now, you'll be able to find someone in your league who's willing to sit on Kirilov and you'll get real value for a, for him. But right now, I think it's just it's just too scary to do anything. And so I'm just I'm in hold mode with him everywhere. So doesn't that, doesn't that just seem weird, though, Chad? Like, have we ever seen this before where young player gets a surgery and all of a sudden within the next six months almost it's like flaring up as disastrous like maybe this really is just soreness and he's working out the kinks getting used to swinging a bat at full speed again like i not to provide too much of the glass half full but and we're not doctors but couldn't it just be that it could it's the way he talked about it and like they they seem confused by it he's frustrated by it like I, I you know we hear you hear this all the time with guys who have surgery and are working their way back and are like yeah i think i pushed it too hard and i just got to dial it back a little bit and like i'm going to take a week and get 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 right like that isn't the talk track here the talk track here has been much more i don't know if scary is the right word but like here, here's a quote from Karoloff from Aaron Gleeman's article on The Athletic. He said, it's just frustrating, but I've determined to, I'm determined to get to the bottom of this. I don't want to be short-sighted about it. Obviously, this is just one long, continuous puzzle to try to figure out. Uh, he described the pain as, quote-unquote, definitely similar to the initial in- injury. I'm still having a lot of pain when I swing. It's just hard to be effective when I'm having pain, the amount of pain I'm having. He, has, he said he has not been pain-free at all since the surgery. Like... All of those things are things that are like, this isn't a like, yeah, I've been mostly pain-free and like getting swinging the bat again so much has has aggravated it and I just need to like rest it. Or like, I know exactly what the problem is. I'll be fine. Like he, it just, I don't know. None of those, those quotes are almost worse to me than if he had been like, I re-injured it. Now I have to have surgery again. At least then I would know what the timeline is. This just feels, I don't know, just too open-ended, at least for now. And that's why I just, I would just wait, see what happens. So with that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with a couple more questions from our listeners. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show Welcome back to Keeper Cut. Chad Young and Pete Ball here. We're answering some listener questions today. 
this one I think we could we could talk about for a while. So let's let's spend some time on it. This came in from at real Zach Mason. He wants to know: Is there anyone under thirty percent rostered in Auto New that you like? This is a fun one. Auto New leagues for for those who don't play, you know, you got twelve teams, forty man rosters, so four hundred eighty players rostered. So under thirty percent, you're talking about you know fringe top 500 types maybe even lower than that there's probably more than 500 players who are 30 percent or more rostered so it's uh you're getting deep so pete let's get deep anyone who jumps out to you yeah let's do it first place my mind went is third base because third base so far in this very small sample is kind of exactly what we expected machado especially jose ramirez Rafael Devers and Austin Riley look incredible and and Nolan Arenado's look very good. And then after that, the field kind of falls off. So there were two third basemen that kind of stood out to me. And before I say this first name, I want to reiterate what Chad just said. We are talking about like barely top 500 extremely fringe players, but Michael Franco for the Nationals is hitting the crap out of the ball so so far. I was floored when I found out he's still just 29 years old. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not saying there's like some untapped potential there or anything like that. But he's a guy who throughout his career has been very tough to strike out. That could certainly play up. And and if he's hitting the ball this hard, that means, you know, he's going to be putting the ball in play and he's he's impacting the ball. And I think his playtime is pretty safe for Washington. So we're talking in deep leagues. If you really needed the third base help, I kind of like Michael Franco. I, there's no question in my mind in most leagues, you'd be able to get him for a buck. The other name that's maybe a little bit more interesting, if you can be more patient, would be Evan Longoria of the Giants who last year, if you look at his stat cast page, it was definitely like a renaissance for Longoria. And the strikeout rate was up a little bit, but he's another guy who throughout his career has been very difficult to strike out and his, his hard hit rate, everything was extremely high up. I know he was a lot of people's picks early on in the offseason to be this year's Joey Votto, you know, a guy who people had pretty much completely written off and ends up having this, this huge resurgence. When he does return, he's dealing with a finger injury. The original timeline for that was like four to six weeks. He's still in the early end of that, even though he's resuming some activities, taking ground balls and stuff like that. But when he does come back, he'll be coming back to a pretty decent lineup. If he could pick up where he left off last year, and he did deal with plantar fasciitis last year as well, so he doesn't come without his warts. But we're talking some decent upside that you could get for a dollar if you'll be a little bit patient with him coming back. Now, I know I, I have some relievers, but I, and you do too, Chad, but I'm curious to hear any reaction to, to Franco or Longoria in this thin third base market. I'm a I'm a big fan of Longoria. He was very good when healthy last year. And I think once he's back, like you won't be able to rely on him. You don't want him to be your your only third baseman, but as a guy who can step in when he's healthy, I, I'm a big fan. Franco, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like we've seen this before from Franco, where he sure puts on a, a power display and looks pretty good for a little while and then it all comes crashing back down. And I I don't know. I, you might as well, like, there are worse things to do than to ride his hot streak and see what he can do. And if you've got a third baseman and you've got, you need a bench bat and sure, grab him and, and see what he can do. But I, I'm, eh, I don't know. So what I will say about Franco is, you know, he's not that far removed from a three-year stretch with the Phillies where he basically averaged like 23 homers and about 75 RBA, RBI for three years in a row. And that was with that third year having some limited playtime. And since then, he hasn't really been an everyday player. I, well, I guess that's not entirely true, but he hasn't been completely healthy. He hasn't been on the field. And even when he has, he hasn't played every single day, although he played a lot in the shortened season. So 
it's not meant to be a, a huge ringing endorsement. I get your reservations, but for this deep, I think he could provide some decent value. Yeah, it makes sense. Let's uh, let's stick with the bats because we'll, we'll talk about arms as well. But some other bats that I think are interesting. Taylor Ward. So Taylor Ward, we, we got this announcement earlier in the season when Joe Madden said Taylor Ward was going to be the right fielder once he came back from injury. And the immediate reaction from everyone, as it almost should be, is like, okay, well, if Trout's in center and you've got Brandon Marsh and Joe Adele, how is Taylor Ward your right fielder? Taylor Ward is 6%, no, 7% rostered in auto new leagues right now. He had a 333 Woba last year and a 344 X Woba. So there might be a little more behind that. He was only around 4.2 or 4.3 points per game. But as a starter, he was at 4.58, which isn't great, but isn't so bad for an outfielder, especially one who is this low in a roster percentage. He made his first start yesterday. He had a home run. He stole a base. He had, I think he was two for three with two walks in addition to those hits. Uh, He's also, as of right now, hitting fourth in that lineup. So if you're in a five by five league and you need RBIs, there is a, a, there aren't a lot of better spots to be than to have Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, and Anthony Rendon as the three guys hitting in front of you. He should have Jared Walsh, like right in front of him, right behind him, something like that. If you listen to the first pitch podcast on Sunday, I said almost these exact same things about him coming off his, his first start of the year. So I, I'm really intrigued by him. In fact, I, I'm, you know what? You know how intrigued I am, Pete? I am going how to, intrigued. I'm going to pull up Taylor Ward right now. And he is a free agent in four of my six leagues. One of which I know I need offense. And I'm starting an auction for Taylor Ward right now. Actually, I'm going to start. I'm going to start two auctions for Taylor Ward right now. Yeah. Wow. Putting your money where your mouth is. is. Taylor Ward. I mentioned Taylor Ward. Even with my two auctions started, he'll still be well under 30%. So he still fits this, this answer. Some other bats that I think are interesting. Cooper Hummel is with Arizona. Nobody on that team is hitting. But he's not actually doing so bad. He's only had 19 plate appearances, but he's put up 31.5 points in those 19 plate appearances. He has seven walks and a home run in those 19 plate appearances. He is a patient hitter who, who does a good job of getting on base, who fits the auto new format well. Now, he has played in, like I said, seven games, and four of those, he only got one plate appearance because he came in as a pinch hitter. You have to be patient with him, but I think he is going to earn more and more playing time. So I, I'm, and I'm not the first one to sort of note him or discover him or anything like that, but he is, he is well under 30%, only about 20% rostered. And that's gone up 18.63% in the last 30 days. So a month ago, this guy was basically on no one's radar. Definitely worth a look now. Yadiel Hernandez, not a young guy, 34 years old with the Nationals, but the Nationals outfield, not doing great. And he's not doing so bad. He's at 4.69 points per game so far. Just a guy worth sort of keeping an eye on if you need outfield depth. And then the last bat to quickly mention is your old friend, Michael Chavis. Michael Chavis, no longer with Boston, now with Pittsburgh. Only 14 plate appearances, but he has 42.8 points. 8.56 points per game, more than three points per plate appearance with Pittsburgh so far. Now, he has been very bad since his rookie year. 
But that rookie year, he did show us that he's got some decent pop, especially for a guy with second base eligibility. He had a, you know, not a great season that year, but a 323 Woba, a 322 on base percentage, 444 slugging, 254 average with 18 home runs in just 95 games. He's not going to do a ton for you, but if you're looking this deep, he's interesting and he's hitting the ball really well this year. Like, yes, a 650 Woba is not sustainable. He's got a six or sorry, a 554 X Woba. Now that is not also not sustainable, but what it does say is he's legitimately hitting the ball that hard. His exit velocity is up to 91.5. That would be a career high. His barrel rate so far at 8.3%. Now it is way, way too early to take those numbers seriously. And there is some, there are some concerns here, right? He's got a negative 4.9% launch angle. That's uh, that's not what you want to see, but he's hitting the ball very hard. I think he's at worth at least taking a look at, I would certainly have him on my watch list. I, this is not a Taylor Ward situation. I'm not about to go put, start a bunch of auctions for him, but I'm going to be watching him closely because if he can continue to hit the ball hard, Nobody in Pittsburgh is really blocking him, and maybe he can just be a, a sort of cheap source of plate appearances and power. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like I don't have a ton of interest in Chavis, but you got to appreciate when we're we're digging this deep, safe play time. And so if you combine the fact that there's a player who has safe play time and who has played to his credit very well to this point, I don't see why not. He is 26 years old. He's a former first round pick. I mean, it's not like it's without any upside. I would just hold my breath. I mean, he's he's shown flashes in the past, like you said, and then just gone on streaks of just being a disaster. But if I can get him for a dollar because I need to bridge the gap between injuries or whatever it might be, I, I actually kind of like that pick. So you mentioned that you've got some relievers. I want to just start off by saying there are always, always in auto new leagues relievers available. And so I went in, I did a search in the auto new search. I sorted, I, I set roster percentage to less than 30% sorted by point looked at just starting pitchers and relief pitchers and then sorted by points per inning pitched there are one two four six eight ten twelve thirteen pitchers who have thrown more than an inning and have more than 10 points per inning pitch so far that are under 30 percent rostered ryan helsley darren o'day chasen shreve sergio romo sean doolittle brad boxberger Yuri's Familia, Stephen Okert, Andrew Bellotti, JT Chargeois, Brock Burke, Rafael Montero, and Jason Adam. Now, you'd have to do a much deeper dive on those guys to really know which of them you want to bet on, who's going to keep it up, who's just sort of fool's gold right now. But even as you go down below 10, Drew Smith, Scott Efros, Lucas Litke, Danny Jimenez, like all these guys, these guys are all over 9.75 points per inning pitch. So there's a ton of a ton of arms out there that you can always sort of go, go looking for first relievers down here, but you've got a couple that are in this group that, that stand out to you. Yeah. One of them is Michael Givens, just because I think he could wrestle away that closer's job in Chicago. I think, I think he got their most recent save. Robertson got their first two and Givens got the third, I believe. Yeah. In, in cores. And there was some speculation that his experience pitching in cores might've factored into that, but who knows? Wow. If so, fair enough. But he did convert it, bottom line. So sometimes that's all it takes. He's he's definitely older now. Michael Givens, 32 years old already. But he's another guy kind of similar to Chavis that's shown glimpses in the past of being like, oh, there's there's something here. 
Could it all come to fruition? I, I don't know. But the fact that he's close to potentially wrestling that closes job away in Chicago definitely interests me because, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter in four by four, but if you can get a guy who's going to rack up saves, I like it. A player like maybe a little bit more is Michael King of the Yankees. They've already shown they're willing to let him go multiple innings, which is kind of hard to find these days for relievers, at least competent ones who can come in for multiple innings and shut things down. You know, he's not Garrett Whitlock or something like that, not to go all Red Sox Yankees here, but you know, the whip looks high at 1.30, but he's been really effective. He's been striking guys out so far. And, and the fact that they've already turned to him in four different situations to go over an inning kind of speaks to their confidence in him. And if something does happen to Chapman, he has not looked like himself the last year and a half. I'm not saying King's going to step in as the closer. I don't think he is. I actually think the opposite, that someone else would, whether it be Green or Loisica, and that would bump up King even further up the pie chart, or not the pie chart, of the pecking order of what they need or the innings they're going to give to players. I think he's going to get more high leverage situations, and I'd like to see him thrive in those situations. Get a, it could be, he bigger, could be a bigger slice of the pie chart of relief pitcher innings in the Yankee bullpens. Yes, there we go. Maybe my mind's just on pie because it is Easter, Chad, so I don't know. Is Easter a big pie holiday? I don't know. Is it for your family? I don't know what it is. No, no, we weren't really a big (laughs) pie family growing up. I mean, I don't know where that came from. Desserts? Anyways. (laughs) So are you a fruit pie guy or like a a, a dessert pie. pie guy? Any pie. Yeah, see, I'm kind of the same way. Chicken pot pie, like give it to me. Yeah. My kids really like yeah. savory pies for dinner. And then like there's a pie shop near us that has savory pies for, for meals and then also has sweet pies. And Got to do both. Yeah. And they've got this incredible. <laughs> so if you're in Seattle, Alamode Pie has this incredible sour cherry pie. Super, super good. You should go get it. They don't even pay for that. That Sounds was just delicious. that was just me. They, I promise they're not free ads. But if you if you. <laughs> Work for Alamode, and you hear this, you should reach out because you could sponsor us. We have ads. Yeah. You can do one. So we'll see. Maybe that'll Freeze work. Freeze a pie, send it to Boston for me. <laughs> there we go. Getting back to relievers who are less than 30% rostered, though. I, one of the things I like about King that you mentioned is the all the innings he's thrown. And so I was looking the because the other thing you can get you want from your relievers in auto new is volume. Tyler Anderson has made two relief appearances for the Dodgers and thrown eight innings. It's only two, you know. Hard to know how he'll be used going forward, but they've been eight excellent innings. We've gotten I'm trying to see who else has thrown a lot of innings. Like Paulo Espino for the Nats has thrown six point one innings in three appearances already, but he's only got three point six nine points per innings pitch. That's not really going to help you very much. But that that is the other thing I would do, and I'm just sort of doing it on the fly here, and it's not very effective. <laughs> but uh, Victor Arano with the Nationals has made five appearances already and gone 5.2 innings pitch with 8.74 points per inning pitch. Look for guys like that, for guys who are throwing every day or throwing multiple innings because you can get a lot of value out of relievers who go that often. Any starting pitchers you noticed in this sub-30% group? Oh, man. Uh, to be honest with you, no. I'm curious to see if you did while I continue to filter through here, but All right. this is a this is a second or third time looking through, and, and weak. I hate to come up with nothing. I got, but I got yeah, three for you. Wow. Okay. And I am not making a move to pick up probably any of them, but at least two of them. But Brad Keller has made two starts so far. Gone 13 innings, put up 6.3 points per inning pitched. He's got 10 strikeouts in those 13 innings. They're, you know, 
you want to find high strikeout guys, and, and Keller is not that. He's going to put up less than a strikeout per inning. But that's two pretty good starts. I believe his velocity was up in the early going as well. So intriguing. His next start is this Thursday against Minnesota. His two good starts that he had were against Cleveland, who we thought was terrible, but has actually been good. So it's hard to know what to make of that because he caught them in those first two games when they were still terrible. And Detroit, whose offense has not been particularly good. I'm very curious to see what he does against a stronger Minnesota offense. I'm not doing anything yet, but if he pitches well in that game, I'd be, it may be too late, but I'm not acting until then. Justin Steele for the Cubs. He pitched really well in his first start, five innings without giving up a run with five strikeouts and just one walk against Milwaukee. It was an over six inning point printing pitch game. Then he went to Colorado, which is never a fun place to pitch. And went 4.1 innings, put up 21.07 points. That's a pretty good start for a game at Coors. Didn't give up a home run. Had four strikeouts at 4.1 innings pitch. Again, I'm not ready to jump on him just yet, but he is pitching at home against Tampa Bay next week. So I'm curious, or this week. So I'm very curious to see what he does in that start. And then the last guy who is the one who I actually might pick up, and I talked about him on, on first pitch on Sunday as well. Paul Blackburn made his second start on Saturday facing this one was against Toronto. He went five innings pitch. He had only three strikeouts, but didn't give up any home runs, only gave up five hits in those five innings. It was a six point per inning pitch start for him. That was a step down from his start at Tampa where he put up over eight points per inning pitch. But those are two pretty good starts against not bad offenses like Tampa. Yeah, it's at Tampa. It's a tough place to hit Toronto, though, obviously a great offense. And he, he did a pretty nice job against them. I believe his next start will either be Texas or Baltimore. And so I actually might pick him up and stream him. And if he does well there, I may hold him a little bit. He's real interesting. He gets to pitch half his games in Oakland and he hasn't even done that yet. He's had these two good starts. He hasn't even had a home start in that great park yet. So I think he is well worth at least at least looking at because th- those are those are two pretty good starts to to kick off the year. Yeah, I like those looking looking through. I guess if I if I had to t- throw out two names, the first one I'd throw out would be Rich Hill, just because when Rich Hill's been healthy, he's been pretty effective over the last few years. And obviously, last year he had that spell of multiple double digit strikeout games, and I don't know if I'd be holding my breath for him to do that again. But it looks like Garrett Whitlock's been kind of piggybacking him, so I think that'll help maintain like the occasional blow up won't be as bad because they'll probably be quick to pull him. The other name, maybe we'll lose followers from even suggesting this guy, but Dallas Keuchel, he's, he's only made one start I'm so quitting far. The show. I'm, <laughs> I'm out. You're recommending Dallas Keuchel. But, Come on. <laughs> okay. I mean, I get it, but first of all, time. he's getting there. They're they're going to continue to give him the ball every five days. He did have 10 swings and misses on 80 pitches. I mean, I, that's something worth noting. He he outdueled Robbie Ray. I don't, I don't know if I'd call it much of a pitcher's duel because Robbie Ray got absolutely nuked. But Robbie Ray, nine swings and misses on 88 pitches. Dallas Keuchel, 10 on 80. Not that I expect a lot of strikeouts from Keuchel, but if he's being a little bit more deceptive, continues to, as he has throughout his career, keep the ball on the ground. I do think if you're desperate for starting pitching and you play the matchups correctly, because historically the last few years, that's been a pretty easy division to pitch in. You could end up getting pretty lucky and getting some decent starts out of Keuchel. But I think the fact that I just recommended a like 48-year-old and Dallas Keuchel 
speaks to the if you're looking in the sub 30% range for starting pitchers, I, <laughs> I think your rotation is in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> That's fair to go back quickly to, to Paul Blackburn, who I am sure I am interested in and I'm getting more interested because that's why I want to go back to him. So his velocity is up. His primary pitch is a sinker. He was at 91 miles per hour last year. He's at 92.2 this year. As we know, a lot of pitchers have been down this year because of the shortened spring training. So seeing someone up is really interesting. His four seamer is also up from 90.8 to 92, although he doesn't use that pitch very much. But what's what is interesting? The other thing that stands out to me is last year he used his sinker 42% of the time and then his cutter 25.6% of the time. And so those were his two primary pitches. He's using them almost 70% of the time between them. This year, he's cut the sinker from 42% to 32.6%. He's cut the cutter from 256 to 13.2%. And he started to use his changeup more and his curveball more. His changeup and curveball were both around 12, 13% last year. They're both around 21, 22% this year. So he's shifted his pick, pitch mix to be far more balanced and he's got more velocity. I'm just, I'm very intrigued by this, by a guy who's got that kind of change in his stuff. It seems and a change in his pitch mix mix. It seems like he's trying to do something a little different. I'm cautiously optimistic that he's actually found something here. I think he's worth, I think he's worth a flyer and with it, with an easy matchup coming up, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm going to take a shot at him somewhere. I haven't figured out where yet, but I'm going to grab him at least somewhere to stream this week. And I'm trying to look at the, I mean, the A's are home for the Orioles for four, home for the Rangers for four, for three. So he's going to get at least one of those seven starts. That's great. Then they've got two at the Giants, which is not great. Then they've got, then they're home for the Guardians and home for the Rays. So he's probably got at least two more starts coming up where you're going to feel okay about using him pitching in that park against, you know, not non elite offenses. We'll say, even though it looks like the guardians might be, I'm still not buying it just yet. So I'm intrigued by Blackburn. That's sort of my, my final word on him, I think, but he's the one guy I see that I'm like, okay, yeah, there's something here. Maybe he's the most interesting of the five names that we mentioned for starting pitchers, he's by far the most interesting. And you bring up the matchups, Chad. He's already he already went to Tampa Bay and pitched extremely well, and then he went to Toronto and held his own. So I'm not saying like forget it, like like I'm throwing him out there against the Dodgers now. But like that gives me some vote of confidence that he can handle you know Baltimore, Texas, Cleveland, those those Giants, the the names he threw out there. Be nice. Don't don't say mean things about my Guardians. <laughs> I was going to say the, the, the guardians of the 144 team WRC plus or whatever yeah. it is. So maybe not. So one last question to get to, this is going back to the Fletch topper who asked us the questions about taking over rebuild. Also wanted to know what is the most unique set of rules you play with in a league? I feel like this is a hard one for me because the most unique set of rules I've come up with for a league is auto new. <laughs> It's like that was my super unique league that only I was playing in 15, 16, whatever it was years ago, along with Niv and, and the other guys we we formed this league with. And now like lots of people are playing that. So that's sort of my cop out answer. I'll see if I have a better one. But what about you, Pete? Any any unique rules in any of your leagues? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, love the question from Fletch. Great listener of the show. Thanks, man. 
I, so my, I league manage on ESPN, my longest standing league. We've been a league since 2008. And if you're a, a longtime listener of the show, you know, I've referenced this league in the past and we do some cool things to make it interesting. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a head to head league seven by seven. It's a great league. It's my favorite league. It's the one I want to win the most every year. It's, it's awesome. But one thing that we do to decide draft order, cause you know, I, I don't like just having, especially for shallow keeper leagues, we only keep three. There's no reason to base the draft order on last year's standings. There's just not, right? I mean, like you might finish in last place, but you prefer to pick 16th as opposed to first. So one thing that we do is I come up with a huge long list of questions. We call it the year-long contest where you've got to predict the MVP, the MVP runner-up for both leagues, the Cy Young, who's going to win the divisions, who wins the home run derby. It's It ends up being like 60-something questions. And at the end of the year, we total up to see who had the most correct responses to that. And that person ends up getting the fourth overall pick, I believe. The first, second, and third are based on who finishes in seventh, eighth, and ninth, since those are the first places to miss making the playoffs. So there's reward for still trying to try and make it even when you're on the cusp. And then to decide three other or four other spots in the draft, these other people get to choose where they want to pick in the draft. Each month, starting in May, so May, June, July, and August, we do a month-long contest. So like in May, it'll be saves. So everyone on their team picks one of their closers, and we'll probably do saves slash holds this year because we're now a saves slash holds league starting this year. And whichever player from our teams finishes with the most saves or holds. So like I have, who do I, I have Art Warren as like my best reliever. I'm probably going to pick him. If he finishes with the most saves slash holds at the end of the month, then that will put me in contention to pick a pick between five and 16. Then we'll do stolen bases, same kind of deal in June. And then we'll do strikeouts in July and homers in August. And then you add up all the totals of the four contest winners at the end. Whoever's the highest total gets to pick where they want to pick between five and 16. The next person who had the most between five and 16, so on and so forth. So it's really like this whole year long thing to figure out where you pick in the draft, just to make it a little bit more fun and interesting. I love that. I, and I, I love having unique ways to pick drafts. I mean, I think in, in our keeper cut listener leagues are, are two that are, that have drafts. We were, we are not doing the simple like last place picks first. We are saying in one of the leagues, the Roto League, the rule is that the last place team gets the first choice of their draft slot and then up from there. And so if you win the league, you may not get the last pick, but you get the last pick of your pick. In the head-to-head, because there's playoffs, we're, we're doing it a little bit different, which is the team that finishes seventh will get the first choice of their draft pick. So the team that misses the playoffs, but tries a little bit of an incentive not to tank gets the first choice followed by the team that finished eighth ninth 10th 11th 12th and then it'll go to the last playoff teams or the first playoff teams eliminated right and and so in that case it's going to be the teams that lose in the first round of the playoffs the team with the better regular season record of those two will get the next pick of which pick they want and then so on through the nice so Doing, I, I like that, but the way you guys are doing it for that league with these these like mini contests, that's that's awesome. I wish, I wish I played in a league that did something like that. I may have to propose that for a league at some point because that is that's super fun. Uh, for my keeper leagues, other than Auto New, the sort of most unique thing is the minor league draft in my CBS league, where there's no requirement that you call up your minor leaguers at any point. So you you could stash a guy literally forever if you want. 
but you have to forfeit the pick you used the year before to keep a guy stashed past the keeper deadline of the next year. And so it creates this really interesting sort of balance in values of prospects where like, you know, a really highly rated prospect who's far away has almost no value because you'd be using multiple draft picks on them. But one of the things I find fascinating is there is always in this league, there are always teams that do that anyways. And so like for me, like looking at the draft this year, I picked last in both the first and second round of this draft because I won the league last year. So I got to pick last worthwhile trade off little, little humble brag there. We'll take that. I took Alec Thomas and I took Aaron Ashby with my two picks because I wanted guys who were going to be up. But then there's there are picks like I'm trying to think like the the team that picked fourth has Grayson Rodriguez stashed because they someone took them because they took them last year. There was I'm trying to think who else. C.J. Abrams was picked last year and the team had him stashed again this year rather than calling him up. I'm looking at who was picked this year. That that sort of stands out to me in that regard. Maybe Jordan Lawler. I mean that that that's guy like he was taken in the second round, and that team is going to give up their second round pick next year and probably the year after. So they made the decision that that was worth it to them to sit on him because he's that highly regarded a prospect. The upside is huge. Totally, totally get it. Yeah. Not what I do, but that that does create some sort of interesting values and create some interesting trade conversations as well because like. What is Jordan Lawler's trade value right now? I'm not sure. I think to me, it's probably almost nil, but there's someone else who probably finds him really interesting. So yeah, good question. Fun question. It's something we, we like to ask our guests on the show is, is sort of what are unique rules they play with? So I'm, I'm glad somebody pushed that back on us. Yeah, that was fun. So with that, thank you all for listening. As a reminder, you can follow the show at Keep or Cut on Twitter. Wherever you are listening, remember to subscribe. If they take ratings and reviews, leave us ratings and reviews. We really appreciate them. You can follow Pete at Pete B Baseball. You can find me at Chad Young. Yeah. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>